football, football. Well, you talk so much about it. I know the reason that you like it. Get away from the wife for a few hours, drink your head off. Football, football, football. Well, you talk so much about it. I know the reason that you like it. Get away from the wife for a few hours, drink your head off. Welcome to episode 147 of the Men Who Save Football, the Dundalk FC fancast. In recent weeks, we were trying to build some momentum and inspire some belief among the fans and maybe even among ourselves that there was a chance of European football. Against Shelburne, we were facing an evenly matched team and we were hoping that we could continue the good form that we displayed against Drogheda. However, last night, it all kind of fell a little bit flat and Dundalk season came to a competitive end in something of a whimper. Guys, how do we put that very, very lacklustre performance in context when there was still something to play for? And what does it say about the overall campaign this year and the prospects for next season? Well, first of all, I would say, Ken, that the, uh, we were trying to build um, uh, hope, whatever. That, that we is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. I think it was a one-man campaign. Um, yeah. I mean, but I would say one thing. Uh, last week, I started to get whipped up into a slight. We could take fourth, and you know that that is it done. Um, like to put it in context, I think like we beat. Uh, if you think about the last few weeks, we beat Cork and we beat Drogheda. We lose to Pats and we lose to Shells. So we beat the teams below us. We can't beat the teams above us. That's it. You know, if you think about the last four games, whatever. Straight split, you know. Teams below us we beat, teams above us we can't beat. And we are where we are. Um I would I would agree. I mean, I think that's that's the season now slowly rolling to a halt, like a you know, like a train, you know, out of momentum and is slowly creaking to a stop. Uh so any dreams of getting anything are over. I mean, I I said in recent podcasts we're not gonna drop below six. That's still the case, and I don't think we're gonna go any higher. Um, so that's that. And I think it looked like a team who believed that. They look like a team who simply do not believe they can get fourth. So they're on the beach, you know, sixth is this. Um, and I, I don't mean even like intellectually or logically, consciously. I just think in the back of the mind, in the subconscious, where you cannot reach them, you know, where you cannot train for that. I think this this team's race is run this season. And again, I think it's sub. I think it's subconscious. I don't think it's a conscious thing saying, listen, if we go out tonight, we can get this, and we can do this, we can do this. Because it was a tall order looking at some of the teams ahead, like Shells and Bows, rivals for that spot were ahead of us. And, you know, we we beat um, Drada and uh, Cork pretty comfortably. But then when we face the teams we have to beat, like a Pats or a Shells, the fight just isn't there. And I just think in context, it shows us exactly where we are as a team. I think sixth is the perfect position for what we've seen this season. I don't think you can really complain. I mean, if we finish fifth or whatever, or so be it, but we're not going to get higher than fifth. We're not getting Europe. I don't think we deserve to be below that. I don't think we deserve to be above it. I think that, and then last night's game was just, you know, the red line underneath that because it summed up everything about us. Um, Got torn apart defensively. They take their chance, and we didn't get a shot on target. So we can't score and we can't defend. And um, but there's enough talent in there that you know we're not down the bottom of the table. We, we're not re- relegation fodder. Um, we're we're going to be safe, but we're not going to get Europe. And I think last night's game kind of um, 
you know, well, the, well, the last few weeks showed that that we when we can beat the teams below us, there is talent throughout the team, but we just don't have whatever it is to push forward because we got absolutely shown up. I mean, it could have been three 0 but twenty minutes. I mean, I think Jack Moylan was absolutely tearing us to bits. Um, they completely tore us apart for their goal. Shep was completely bamboozled. Again, one of those things where there was lots of white shirts. We've seen lots of goals recently where between the player who's scoring and the goal is a whole bunch of white shirts, but they still find a way through. Um, they could have got two more after that pretty quickly. We had a lot of the ball. We passed it about. A lot of lateral passes, a lot of sideways, sideways, then back, then forward, then sideways, and sideways, hoofing it in from the side. Um, but we didn't get a single shot on target. Uh, some speculative shots from outside the box. Um, but that's it. Uh, and so I think, as you said, it just rolled to a whimper. We held onto the ball. We passed it about. Um, no one wants to drive or run at goals. It just seems to be constantly passing it sideways, looking for someone to do something, and then inevitably out to the wings to bomb it in where we don't do anything with it. But no one seems to want to run a goal. No one wants to seem to take them on. And um, we don't. We didn't get anything from the game and we didn't get anything from our season. I don't know if I completely agree that this was just a team that, you know, don't believe anymore. Uh, and they believe they're sixth and sort of coasting to there because I think this is exactly what we've seen many times on the road already this season, right? Uh, and I think... If you look this performance, it looks like the template, right, for how Dundalk lose games on the road, right? Go behind, uh, you know, to a reasonably early goal, which has happened, I can't remember how many times this season already. Are we, like, into, like, the 24th time we've been behind this season or something like that? Uh, and then fail to register shots on target, right? Which, again, seems like the, the other part of the template. And we've talked about the difficulty analyzing, right, Dundalk games and Dundalk performances so far this season. But I really don't understand how you go from a team that, in the past week have scored eight goals right and you know really both games i think against uh cork and Drada, who are you know pretty decent teams uh and then go and you know fail to register a shot on target against shells it just seems like impossible and yet we've seen this so many times this season right we only have to look back at the last match at talca park right where we really struggled for ages and ages to get anything going that time against 10 men um, but, you know, countless times, games away to Pats, away to Galway, uh, away to Cork as well, like earlier in the season, which was pretty terrible. Um, you know, like all of these games, it just seems like the same thing over and over again. And so when I look at last night's game, I don't think, oh, this is just the team that, you know, had their feet up that were ready to, to hit the beach, right? This just seems like more of what came before. And I think it gets it gets harder and harder, right, for the the manager to come out and try and explain to people, you know, that, you know, we're... Um, we're not playing according to the game plan or, you know, uh, the players aren't doing enough and stuff like this when it's the same thing over and over again, right? You know, so many people online talking about the definition of insanity, doing the same thing again and expecting different results. That looks like what's happening with this team at the moment, right? The, the lineup was exactly what we've seen before. The performance was exactly what we've seen before. The result was exactly what we've seen before. And right, yeah, how do we expect things to be any different, right? Anytime it just seems to be the same approach again and again. And I don't know, like I, I think on one hand, it's hard to decide why we have this, you know, great performance at home and then woeful performance on the road. 
But if you just look at our away games, you know, one after another, this just looks like more of the same. If we look at the events of the game, we discussed about the unusual deployment of Greg Sloggett at centre half. We talked about maybe how he might be more equipped to deal with some of the pace that we might encounter in the Shelburne attack. Uh, Moylan has been one of Shelburne's stars in recent years. He's likely to, I think he's already set for for, uh, a career across the water. But we saw a good illustration of what he can do to a defence that lacked pace when rather than being matched up with Sluggett, uh, he turned Darren Brownlee on the halfway line and then was absolutely free and clear and in wide open space, which led to the goal. And it's not a great look, but it's a familiar one. Our defence, like it did in Galway, absolutely caught out of shape, all at sea. A good ball through to Will Jarvis, who basically sits Shep down, makes him make a decision, and then finishes, in fairness, he puts it right into the top corner. It's an excellent finish, but you've just got one defender on the line, so he can really pick his spot. Dundalk had once again begun okay. We were in possession, we were passing the ball around, but we said it when we were there on the terrace at half time. Once that goal went in, in the next 20 minutes, we kind of had insipid possession. We moved it over and back. But there was a feeling even at halftime that we weren't at it. We we didn't have the fizz. We didn't have the vitality. We didn't have the... There was nobody out there who was really inspiring other players to do a little bit better. And we saw what we've seen so much. We've seen just players go through a kind of routine of making similar mistakes, laboured, slow, pedestrian build-ups, uh, getting the ball into wide positions and hesitating to put it in early, overplaying losing possession or running the ball out of play. We seem to not use our set pieces very well. How many times did we have corners and free kicks and crosses from play go directly and easily into the Shelburne keeper's grasp or be headed out by the first defender? We've kind of seen this all season. So it's strange that uh, I suppose the mystery of the season is when we think back to the cup tie against Shamrock Rovers, who by far, and the table tells you this, they have the best quality squad. They have the best players. They're cantering to another league title. We put them out of the cup in a game that was really meaningful. You know, that I mean, they wanted to win that game. We actually played essentially a weakened team, and then we went down to 10 men, but we had the spirit and resilience to actually win the game. That sort of character, which was evident there, and we also bet Jammer Grovers at home. So once again, you've bet the best team in the country twice. And, and you've done it displaying a resolve and a resilience that was entirely absent last night. How do you account for that? I mean, these are players who can beat the best team in the country and then can go out and lose to, say, Galway in, in spectacular fashion. I know Galway have momentum and they're doing well, but they're still a first division side. And we see that Bose have managed to get past them today. How do you reconcile this sort of amplitude and performance that we can beat the best, but we struggle against much more modest sides with much less resources? And we, we kind of do that consistently. I actually don't know. And I think it, it, it it's the uh, it's the mantra that they're beyond analysis. Because if you think about games at like the Shamrock Rovers game, we absolutely bossed them. And then last night, the amount of passes, some of the things, it passes out to players on the wing that sailed past the player and went out. Uh, I mean, that is like schoolboy stuff, you know? Passing it out to a player on the wing who is uncontested and there's too much zip on it and the player can't get to it. I mean, that was like mind-boggling to see that. Um, 
and I know, you know, Martin mentions it quite regularly, just the inability to complete passes. Um, basic stuff just collapsing. Um, and as you said, it's similar to the Galway game, getting completely caught in the hop. But that's also been, I mean, that's been a theme of the last two years. When when teams have beaten us, a lot of the time it's that, you know, beaten on the break and we're left for dead and you know a goal is coming. But, um, yeah, it was the fundamentals just not working last night. Not, not even being able to complete passes set pieces going nowhere um having most of the ball but just not doing it with it um no real attempt to play through the center as i said it just seems like instant kicks in to push it out wide and drop it in or you know big cross balls and stuff like this um so but i i don't know why um but, but i would say that if you think about it and i, I you know martin is right i mean this is the tale of the season it's not like this is a late stage collapse but I think why didn't we why didn't we push on from the last two weeks? Um, I just think they think the race is run anyway. But I would say that those brief moments that we've seen this season, which are where the team really cooks, are few and far between. You know, as Martin has said, I think we've gone behind twenty three or twenty four times this season. The norm is for us not to particularly. Um, do things well. I mean, this this is week in week out. We see very similar situations. None of it is really surprising. I mean, when when Shell scored last night, it wasn't particularly shocking. And then, as we said at halftime, we're not going to score because then the other end of things, um, we just knew the bits weren't there. We weren't challenging them. We quite literally was not challenging the keeper. So, I think the question is not. Why didn't we see that last night? But why are we seeing that? Like, what what is about those one offs? Um, which again points possibly to the fact that I, you know, think not entirely throughout the team. I don't think that is, and it, you know, our first team eleven. Now I don't think really would be. You wouldn't want to keep them again for next season. All of them. You, you'd want to see some changes. But I still think there's a huge amount of talent in that team. Hence, you know. Mid table, you know, we've said it before as well. A few games this season, a few few results early on season, like Stigo and stuff like that, changed them, and we're back in the heel of the hunt. So we were, you know, if if it fizzled out last night, but you know, there was still the opportunity to get in there, and we should have been higher up the table had some other results, which were winnable games, like points dropped to UCD start of the season, stuff like that. So the you know it's not, it's not as if we're, we're reflecting on a complete disaster of a season where we were down the bottom and didn't get anywhere, but there just seems to be there is talent through the team and you can see it. And clearly you have a manager who, you know, can do things well, you know, last season and his season with Pats, but it just seems to be not the complete puzzle. We talked about, you know, recruitment and as compared to last season, I mean, I remember at the start of the season, I did say that I thought this was a better squad. I'm retracting that statement now. Um, I do think we definitely had more special players last year. Um, I just don't think that we have the right pieces. And, you know, recently, as Martin has said in recent podcasts, we can't completely say that the manager has gotten everything right as well, because I think we've seen, you know, tactical naivety, a stubbornness, a reluctancy to change things. So I just think it's, you know, 
we almost were there this season, but didn't have all the bits on the field and just didn't really, you know, set out in a way that I think was probably best. And we saw lots of chopping and changing. We never really saw a consistent team. Um, so we didn't get consistent results. But like, I, I think a lot of this stuff is the, the things that worry me most, right? I think you're saying that you see quality right throughout this squad. But I think, you know, you can pick almost any player out of the starting 11 or even on the bench uh, over the past couple of weeks and say, are they playing their best football right now? And I think the answer almost universally is no. Right. And I think that's a really worrying trend when you know that there are people who can produce quality and nobody is doing it. And I think, like I said, when the chips are down a bit, you're really looking for your big players to stand up and, you know, galvanize the people around them. Right. Really be demanding. And I think we know that there are characters like that in the squad. But you got to start questioning why they're not doing that. Like especially last night, there are a couple of big players, like people who are you know stalwarts of the club, and we have seen them lift their teammates over the past few years, right? Almost like grabbing them by the collar and demanding more, and they're not doing that right now. And I think for me, that is a really worrying trend, right? That signals sort of dressing room malaise, where even your best players aren't willing to sort of stand up and be counted, and you know. Um, to demand more from their their teammates. If that's not happening, right, that's more than just recruitment or, you know, about being people being played in positions or, you know, sort of tackle approaches and stuff like that, right? That is, I think, a really worrying, you know, when we talk about the spiritual problems, right? That is spiritual problem number one, I think. On the one hand, Rui, you're arguing that there is quality there. And we all we all kind of wish these players well. We want them to succeed. But it seems when we look at the squad and if we were to consider you know where it fell short a little bit we know that several of our influential players have been essentially unavailable through injury now that sometimes can just be beyond your control a player can get injured in training or in a game and it's just one of those things it can happen but then again when we look at the age profile of the squad it does seem that we have a cohort of players who are now over 30 they're club legends they've been around for a very long time but there's possibly an accumulation of indus of injuries now, which are making these guys only sporadically available to us. I think we all would have liked to have seen more from Keith Ward, more from Robbie Benson, John Mountney. These are big players. We know they've we know their qualities and we know their character. But I suppose we have to ask the question: as we look at the age profile, we could put Andy Boyle and Patrick Hoban into that category as well. Uh, are we looking at a situation where these guys now have been club legends, but physically there is a toll evident now upon them whereby they cannot do quite what they did when they were 23, 24, 25, and we can't realistically expect them to. And that if we have these players in the squad, we'll have this problem of the be them being absent for long periods. Do you, do, they seem to have become more and more fragile as injuries have accumulated. And having a cohort of players like that with that age profile and that injury history seemingly means that we then have to lean heavily on players who are available when those players are out injured. Complication to that is, you know, you'd have to question whether the quality is there whether the guys who were brought in this season are of a level of a peak Andy Boyle or a peak uh, Patrick Hoban. I mean, we kind of put our faith in a lot of young players this season, 
and many of them have also been injured for long periods but also when called upon to play in their position and they were given plenty of game time they couldn't quite do it and this is not a criticism of the their efforts or or, or a definitive verdict on their talents but we saw that for example, Hayden Muller, Hayden Muller and Louis Ainsley were given plenty of opportunities when fit in the back four, but we never achieved a settled, watertight defence. And we've talked about the central defensive midfield role, which probably didn't help that. But it seems that when called upon to step up, we saw that Waziri Williams and Muller, when paired together, we conceded a lot of goals. Likewise, when Louis Ainsley was there at centre half, you know, goals still kept flowing in. It doesn't seem that we have within the squad. We saw Darren Brownlee had a difficult night last night. You know, he was he was found wanting for pace time and time again by by Moylan, who you know, as we said, rounded him on the halfway line and was clean away. There was there was no even attempt at a pursuit there. It was he was just gone. Uh, Moylan nutmegged him then later on and created a chance. So it seems that whatever central defensive partnership we've tried this season, none of them have worked. Now we have Greg Sloggett in there. And it's still not working. Now, that raises questions about recruitment, but it also raises questions about quality. And most of these players, they're still with us for next season. So given that, you know, often we're in a situation whereby we have one-year contracts and there's an opportunity, and sometimes, you know, this is a moment of trepidation because we don't want good players to leave. It seems there needs to be some sort of refresh in the dressing room we need to get players who are more ready for first team action in. Now, maybe some of these young players will learn from this season and they'll be more ready next season. But would you be confident that from what you've seen so far that the solution to our defensive woes lies in the current squad? I'm not so sure. Like for me, I think some of this comes down to coaching and consistency, right? That if you take Hayden Muller as an example, right, he has probably played in every single position across the back line and probably central midfield too. And I don't know, maybe a couple of others. I think I might have seen him like sporadically on sort of left wing and things like this. You know, I, I don't think that benefits a player of his age profile, right? Who needs to say learn a, a trade, right? When you come in at age 20 or 21 playing you know, competitive senior football, maybe for the first time. What you really want is to be slotted into a defense where there's two or three established, you know, sort of pros experienced, you know, sort of around you all the time. And they're sort of dictating where you should be, what you should be doing, right? How you're sort of positioning yourself. And your coach is sort of working with you week in, week out to sort of establish you in a particular position. But if you look at what's happening with Hayden, he's basically just been asked to play like every single position around the, the pitch and see if any of them work or stick. And that doesn't really seem to be, I think, a good recipe for, you know, consistency and for those partnerships. And I think one of the things that really stood out for me in last night's game was it looked like there was no interplay between any of the, the players right beside each other. Nobody looked like they had worked on, you know, sort of a series of, you know, maneuvers or, you know, tactics and stuff like that for them to try and execute on. It was always just, you know who is available at the moment, let me try and kick the ball to them, right? And I think if we look even across the back line, the likes of, you know, sort of Sluggett and Davies, you know, did they play it well together to try and, you know, sort of work anything down the right-hand side? Nope. If you look at the other side, you know, um, Benson and, you know, Brownlee and people like that, did they try and work anything? Nope. You look across the middle midfield, right? That didn't really happen either, right? There seems to be no partnerships. There seems to be, you know, no sense that these players are fitting into a particular system that, you know, they are being asked to play, that they're, you know, sort of working on week in, week out to, you know, try and address this. And I think a lot of the defensive O's 
really sort of stem from that. I think, you know, looking at the the lack of consistency in our back five, it really is, you know, almost laughable how to some degree we're unable to to feel the same players week in, week out. But even when we are, we don't even seem to try, right? There's uh I think cases even in the past few weeks where like Daryl Leahy has been in the back line, Greg Sloggett's been in the back line, Darren Brownlee's been in the back line, Robbie Benson's been in the back line, you know, and it just seems to be like this constant, you know, sort of swapping in and out. And I think you would love to imagine a situation where next season we just look more settled, right? Where we have, you know, a good, where would you say, back seven or eight players. And every one of those is playing week in, week out. And if somebody has to drop out, like somebody else is fitting a like-for-like swap into the position that they are playing. And we're not shuffling people around the entire team to try and accommodate changes and things like that. And, you know, it's funny that we see so little combinations and evidence of, you know, people playing together, despite the fact that week in, week out, we seem to play the same system right? with a lot of its same flaws. You talk about like Darren Brownlee getting turned on the halfway line, right? I think we know enough about Darren Brownlee at this stage to say reasonably good positionally, right? Can sort of, you know, organize himself to be in a good place to block shots and, you know, get headers and stuff like that when the, the time comes. But he doesn't have a whole lot of pace. And so you would say, right, tactically, if I'm going to play Darren Burnley in my team, where do I want to see him on the pitch? Well, you know, I probably don't want to see him, you know, pushed up into the opposition half. And, you know, then when the ball gets turned over, him being caught up against a pacey forward, uh, you know, on the halfway line. But that's exactly what we see happening. And, you know, not just once. We're seeing that, you know, sort of week in, week out. That's not, I think, just a Darren Burnley problem. That is a tactical problem for the team. Right, where they've got to see like this is a potential flaw and there's got to be some tactics put in place that sort of prevent the opposition from easily exposing that right where at least he's got somebody beside him who's got a bit of pace and they don't get stretched too far apart so you know if he gets beaten there's somebody else there to cover but like these are the things that are not happening if we look at the game against pats right you want to see a situation where we had i think in that case muller and slug beside each other right if somebody you know goes into the sort of midfield area to try and win a header. Their other partner has got to sort of drop in behind so that, you know, they've got some cover there if they, if they get beaten for the ball in the air. That's exactly what we don't see happening, right? We see Muller getting caught under a high ball, Sloggett's not covering, and all of a sudden it's in the back of the net. Second goal, almost a reverse, right? Exactly the same. And it just seems, right, that there's no partnerships, there's no coaching about, you know, playing these roles together. And I don't think this stuff is is rocket science, right? I'm not saying that it's necessarily easy to do. I don't think I could do it. But I think, you know, experienced football coaches and stuff like that should be able to work on that kind of stuff in training and achieve a better result than what we're seeing. There was some discussion among fans post-match last night about, you know, questions about the manager. I think we backed the manager after Galway. We said, look, this guy has been a manager for three seasons. He's had two very good ones. This season is pretty much a disappointment. I think everybody can acknowledge that. But... As you kind of discuss all of those issues, you know, it does it does raise the prospect. I mean, if morale is bad, and last night for the first time, I think fitness looked, we looked to be second best to Shelburne in fitness as well. They seem to sustain, I know they were at home and they had a large crowd uh, sort of behind them, but they seem to sustain an energy level that we seemed not to be able to. And we ended up looking rather tired by the end of it all. And like I say, these are, these are a group of players that I think we have a lot of affection for they are legends. I'm not questioning their their character or commitment. Some of them have done tremendous things for the club. But it just does seem that, I mean, 
when you list that shopping list of things that we don't seem to be doing right, it does bring that question about are we going in the right direction back in, which naturally will give rise to discussions about the manager and the coaches. You'd mentioned about how doing the same thing over and over is and with the same result is a form of insanity, but it seems that he has shuffled this pack a lot. He has tried all permutations and combinations of defense. None of them seem to work. I don't know like where you go from there. I mean, particularly when you have many of these players tied down for next season, when perhaps, you know, it might be more beneficial if we had, if we had uh, one of those seasons where there, there's an opportunity to refresh things more. It, it's, it, it, my fear would be that, you know, having seen these players play a lot this season, what is going to change about them next season to make them fitter, hungrier, more motivated, better on the field? I, I, like, surely, like, we, we have a lot of the budget committed already to the current squad. It seems obvious that we need different personnel to me, or much improved current, current personnel, but I don't know how likely that is. We need different personnel to address our defensive woes. What's going to happen? What, what What's going to change in the close season to address these issues that we're talking about? I mean, I mean one thing I would say is I think, like, uh, Martin, Martin makes a really good point about, you know, like, especially like central defenders seeming to have no relationship. And we've seen the same goal happen time and time again. Like, a lot of the dark goals conceded this season, our defence looks completely at sea. Like, no one knows where anyone else is supposed to be. And we're completely caught out. And, you know, we're kind of cut through by a ball because they see us in disarray and we're cut through. One thing potentially is a, a theme that we've raised multiple times, which is the missing piece of the puzzle, which is that defensive holding midfielder in front of central defence. If we're to say, right, these are, just say, you know, the, the situation is that we've got a bunch of players on two-year contracts Budget is tight. The central defense problem might not be solved. Maybe one or one player could come in. If there's any way of a budget for, you know, new players, or you know, we still have some loan players, and maybe that frees up an option, or we get in another loan player, which is potentially one way to solve this problem is by solving the problem that has yet to be solved, which is that central holding midfielder who would, you know, protect this, uh, the defenders, allow them to do their job a bit better. Because that is still the gaping hole in there. And if you push Sloggett back into defence, and Sloggett was, you know, our candidate or probably best suited player for that role, um, you're, you're, you're definitely vacating that position. So that, that could be one way of looking at it, which is the, the defensive problems. Now, I think Martin is totally right, which is there is a training issue here as well it's not just personnel but you've asked a question one potential route could be that we do solve that problem that we've raised multiple times which is the i mean we we got in horgan probably at some expense right down one end of the field but if we're going to look at who we have next season and what you know where we have scope to improve the squad maybe it's positionally and that potentially could solve other issues. Well, just as you mentioned, the centre-half partnership, I mean, just off the top of my head, looking through the squad, we seem to have six players who can play that position. We have Brownlee, McCourt, Boyle, Muller, Ainsley and Mayoa. 
and none of that none of that half a dozen players have given us a, a solid defensive partnership in the in the Boyle and Gartland tradition whereby they're automatic picks every week. Now, if we unearth that Gary Deegan style defensive shield uh, holding midfield player and put it in front of that some duo from that six, do you think that could feasibly be the answer? Because my worry is, you know, we haven't seen it we haven't seen consistently robust defensive performances from anybody. And when you've got half a dozen players in your squad in two positions and you can't seem to find a partnership from them, does that indicate that you just don't have the answer in that half a dozen? Uh, I don't know. Like, I, I think we were probably all fans of, you know, George Graham era Arsenal, right? And I think one of his great beliefs was that you got four players together and you just coach them over and over and over again, right? I think there was stories of him basically tying them using a rope together, saying that you need to be this close together as a unit constantly. You cannot move further away than this from one another, and then just making them defend over and over again. And I think, you know, we sort of see the opposite at the moment, where we've got this roving collection of players, like, over and over again, some of whom are expected to play, you know, almost as wingers, right, where they're roving up and down the field. And the others, right, the center halves who look like they're expected to play, you know, sort of five or 10 yards inside the opposition half and try and distribute the ball around. And for a percentage of the game, that looks quite successful, right, where we really press the opposition back and we play the game, you know, very much in the opposition half. But it means when the ball gets turned over, right, we look totally exposed. And as Rory said, right, we've seen almost the same goal scored over and over again against this Dundalk side. Like, how many times do we seem to have been exposed, like, straight down the middle of the defense? where we look all, let's see, it's just happening like time and time again. And likewise, I think if we look at the opposite end of the pitch, right, if all of this possession that we had in the opposition half was leading to us like getting a chance every two minutes, right, it would be great. But we're also seeing a team that can't create a single shot on target in 90 minutes, right? And not just once, we're seeing that over and over again. It's hard to defend the system, right? To look back and say that, you know, the system is correct. It's just not the right players or that the players aren't doing it right. You know, we've played it the same way over and over again, and it's just not working. And I don't know, like, it, it's hard to sort of look at that and say, we should just, we should keep it up. We should try and do it more. Like, from the defensive side of view, like I say, I think we need to have the same players playing in the same position week in, week out. You know, you've listed off. Uh, five or six of them are already, and you haven't even mentioned the likes of Greg Sluggett, who is currently occupying one of these positions, right? Um, yes, I think we need a collection of players with the right age profile, right, who are going to, you know, form a sound defensive partnership for the next, you know, three, four years. Um, and that might mean looking at a couple of people with very sketchy injury records at the moment and asking whether, you know, they are a, a good bet to stay locked down to the club. But as you say, right, we have people on contract already for next year. And I think the likes of Daryl Lee, who's played very few games, Andy Boyle, who's played comparatively few games, um, Robbie McCourt, uh, Hayden Muller, uh, also who's who's locked down right for next season. You know, I think out of those, Muller's the only one who looks like he has maybe the fitness to continue playing sort of consistently in that position. And so you would have to say maybe as a, if you were going to take some short-term pain, but on a long-term bet, you'd say maybe he's one of the people who you want to stick in the middle of that defense and get him, you know, sort of coached and get him some experience playing there week in, week out. At the same time, right, the system has to adapt, I think, to suit the personnel who are available. And I think if himself and Brownlee, right, are going to be those people, you have to say that having them, you know, place 10 yards inside the opposition half, 
that is a big risk, right? <laughs> I think, like, can you keep playing that week in, week out, right, and expect different results? I don't think so either, right? I think there has to be a tactical reimagining. You know, one of the features, I think, of when Skip first came to the club, I think we, or, or you can, I think, had a, a big, uh, what would you say, research period on the box midfield, right? How he was going to take this approach that he'd, you know, sort of pioneered at Pats and he was going to, you know, try and play the, the dog. And indeed, he seemed to to give that a go, but then fairly quickly switched it up when it didn't seem to be working. And I think the surprising thing is we arrived at this, you know, super high press thing round about, you know, June or July next year. And it seems like he's been completely unwilling to uh, tinker with it ever since then. And I don't know, like it just, like I say, I'm having a real hard time trying to figure out why he's persisting so hard with that, despite all of the flaws that seem to be evident. There is going to be a little turnover. We didn't even mention Darley. He's another player who can play a centre half and has played centre half. And yet again, the goals keep flowing in. It may be possible that if we managed to unearth that Gary Deegan type and put it in front of, say, Hayden Muller and Darren Brownlee. That, you know, is the magic formula which gives us a more robust defence. Or it could be Hayden Muller and Andy Boyle, who knows. It just is certainly a consistent problem that we haven't managed to solve all season. And it's cost us, you know, not the recent game in Pats, but the one before that. We saw that we played pretty well. We dominated possession, but we conceded pretty soft goals when Pats came at us. And the same happened in the second away game. And, you really are going, you mentioned the George Graham team, you know, that uh, Winterburn Adams, Bold Dixon combination was there for a decade or more and Wenger inherited it and he managed to revitalize it and keep it going. And it was this legendary defense that so well drilled, used the offside trap, you know, it, it, it won a lot of trophies, very successful as a result. Uh, we've had an unsettled back four. So yeah, consistency is important, but also having people who can, play who have an element of pace and recovery when Andy Boyle and and Brian Garland were in their prime Andy Boyle was a very very quick defender over the space of those six yards that he needed to make sure that he got to the ball before an on-rushing forward we had pace in the back as well in the form of Sean Hoare when he was here we seem to not have that at the moment and it really is costing us and and that's got to be addressed and I think it probably has to be addressed with personnel as changes as well as coaching and drilling and whatever else we might have i'm not i'm just not sure we have the answer to that in the current squad the lack of inspiration elsewhere as well it's 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 got to be addressed and you know i think fans if they get an impression we'll tell a lot from the close season because we're now sort of in the phase i think the remaining few games is an opportunity we are safe from relegation we're not in contention for any trophies it's an opportunity to have a look at some of the fringe players and the younger players, give them some competitive action and see who has the potential to come into the squad next season and play a more prominent role in it. I think we are going to see a phasing out of some of our more senior um, seasoned campaigners over the next two years anyway. So your first option has got to be the players who are now coming into the squad as 19-year-olds, as 18-year-olds, do they have what it takes to actually be part of the squad before we have to go looking outside the club? I think we've got an opportunity to do that over the next few games. Um, other than that, I, I, I think you know fans will be looking for a response. They'll be looking for signings which address that central midfield defensive role issue. I mean, I, I think you know if we get somebody in that position, then that will be important, and it might just help alleviate that that porous nature of our defence. 
Do you want to turn to Twitter and see what the fans made of the performance last night? Sure. Yeah, let's dive in and see what people thought. In reaction to last night's game, we asked kind of a broader question, which was, you know, about the season itself and why was it so disappointing? So Kevin Mullen comes in and says, the definition of insanity, doing the same things over and over again and expecting a different result. For a big game, we were incredibly flat. We're at a crossroads now, hoping to take the right turn. Daniel Sexton said, we didn't fill the obvious holes in the squad. We wasted resources on injury-prone players. We never settled on a clear first 11 once all season. The manager got into his own head on tactics and players. We persisted with Mali for far too long. Keeper checked out after Europe. Rory Gilsonen said, extremely questionable team selection against a physical up and up Michelle's team. Midfield completely exposed. Worrying how we were so very flat again. A bit better in the second half, but never looked like scoring. Overall, a painful watch. Shane McGurk said, got to say, Duff has done a great job with shells. I, I fear for us now. Probably part-time next year and with that downward spiral. We lacked balance tonight and lost count how many formations. Playing two of your best midfielders in defence takes all shape and balance from your team. Aidan Gonley said, the team for this season was inexperienced in the League of Ireland. Poor tactical decisions made by the manager in games. His legendary status may have kept him in his job. We have to improve the squad from somewhere, please. Uh, play Saga in the number six role. If he can play at centre-back, why not at number six? And Simon Canning said, too soft defensively. Boyle and Ainsley uh, out didn't help. Shep had a great year last year, but didn't this year. Goals win matches. We were 2-1 dimensional. Crosses in, which were headed out. Team seems to carry the ball down the centre of the park too easily. Need investment. Well, like there's the the mention of the magic I word there, investment, right? <laughs> it's just one of those things. I, I think there were questions about, you know, the budget that was given to the manager this year and some of the work he had to do to recruit players and things like that. But I think looking back on the season, right, with the likes of, you know, Branley and Daryl Horgan coming back in, right, you can't really question, I think, the fact that the playing budget seems to have been, you know, reasonably well-funded. Uh, but, you know, on the town end last night, right, there was a question raised about if you're trying to recruit players at the moment, you know, what is the big attraction of coming to Dundalk, right? I think a lot of people look at the pitch, the state that it's in at the moment, and will look at that and say, mm, that's not really a surface that uh, either I'm going to play my best football on or uh, that I'm going to do well, you know, in terms of my, you know, possibly suspicious injury record on. Uh there's no European football as well, which isn't going to be a big draw for, for people. And it's not quite like the Kenny area where you're going to say, you know, the the ray, uh, <laughs> I want to say the, the gaze of Stephen Kenny has fallen upon me. You know, I want to go play football for him. Uh, this kind of thing, right? All these things are suddenly lacking at the moment. And obviously without European football and the budget that comes with it, presumably, you know, uh, cold hard cash uh, isn't going to be the major draw for players either, right? So as Rory said, right, I think we're, beginning to sort of turn our attention to players who might be at the you know sort of under 19 level or you know sort of earlier in their careers and that kind of thing to try and look at who is going to bolster the squad from that angle as well and I suppose the reassuring thing is you would say that there are several club legends who came to the the club that way right Chris Shields right would have started out as a sort of similar sort of prospect when he came to Dundalk in the first place uh, obviously, we missed out on Emmanuel Adeboyega, right, this season, who turned out to be extremely good and, you know, maybe could have been an answer to some of those defensive worries. But you never know where, you know, the next Emmanuel Adeboyega might be lurking at the moment. So 
you know, you would hope that maybe there's uh, some rays of light on that. But I think the pitch is one of those those big things at the moment, right? And I think the noise that the club has been, you know, there is no uh, natural grass surface that will put up with the amount of games that are expected to be played uh, on Oriel Park at the moment. And at the same time, you look at the artificial surface and say, like, this is really not working out well in the long term in terms of the amount of investment that needs to be put into it on, you know, a sort of, I don't know, 10 or 12 year basis, right, to try and sustain the, the playing surface. Uh, and so I think some really tough decisions for the club about where they spend their money and whose money they're going to spend. The investments that we sort of balked at uh, when there was panic uh, on panicked talk of a, a, another foreign takeover, uh, that has now gone to Shelburne. And Shelburne seemed to be on the up. And it's interesting to see the progress they've made. An initial promotion and immediate relegation. Damien Duff has transformed them into a mid-table side, likely to be in with a shout of Europe. It's You can see that they're very much in an upward trend and they did seem to have a large and vibrant crowd there last night. Traditionally, Shelburne were often one of the smaller uh, supported clubs in, in Dublin and I'm not just saying that to be facetious. It was a fact that they never had the fan base that some of their Dublin rivals had. Uh, but it seemed to be fairly vibrant in Talca Park last night. And I suppose a celebrity figure like Damien Duff is is part of that equation. Now, we could accentuate our negatives because we're coming from a period that's been very, very successful with a very charismatic manager who was able to attract the likes of Daryl Hogan, who were at our rivals in Cork, and convince him that Dundalk was a better club for him to make the next step of his career. And indeed, that proved to be the case. There are certain things that are difficult to control. A lot of talk about the pitch, but really, I... I don't think the League of Ireland is equipped with that many pristine surfaces. I mean, if you're going to Daly Mount Park, the pitch isn't great. It's natural, but it's bumpy and hilly and it's not great. Um, likewise, um, Richmond Park, you know, not known for being a pristine surface. Really, the only good surfaces in the country is um, Tala. Um, even the Brandywell, a lot of people are giving out about the quality of surface there, yet it doesn't it didn't stop um Derry attracting some very, very big names there in recent years. So they, they are factors and undoubtedly and money strategically by missing out on Europe, you know, yeah, we, we have less resources money wise to lay on the table. But nonetheless, um I suppose that raises wider questions. I mean, we perhaps and we might do this before the end of the season look at what we can control and i suppose as fans we can look to ourselves if we look at sligo rovers they consistently out fundraise pretty much every other fan base in the country uh, and we could look and see you know what what we can do as fans to maybe put a little bit in the kitty with fundraising events or whatever it might be that could offset some of that lost european cash there's going to be a long period of the off season uh, where fans will not not have much engagement with the club, could that period of time be filled with some sort of fundraising which can go into the kitty for next season? That would be an interesting question to kind of ask. What do, here's one for you, what do people want to do now as fans? What sort of fundraisers are they interested in? What sort of events would they happily buy into and attend and participate in? I know some of the traditional ones like table quizzes and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, people are probably not all that inclined to them or they're not terribly attractive or they usually require more effort than, than they for the effort and time they take. They, they have very little return. So that's something we could ask our own listeners. What sort of events would you 
as Dundalk fans be willing to get behind as fundraisers for the club? We see that the Patrick Hoban tribute night is coming up, but that's not a club event, I don't think, and it's not a a supporters club event, so it's unlikely to work as a fundraiser for the club. No disrespect to Patrick, he's entitled to his own tribute night, but you know, perhaps that is something that the club could have done. Perhaps, perhaps it's something the supporters club could have done, or it could have been done as somebody as a fundraiser. Those sort of things do add up. I know that um, uh, James Rogers and Craig have pointed out on their podcast that we don't do golf classics. We don't do that sort of thing. I'm not even sure exactly what a golf classic is, but apparently they can be fundraisers for clubs. I just put it out there, you know, to our own listeners. What what would you be interested in doing in the off season period or during the season? And if we could all get together as fans and decide a calendar of events that were fundraisers that people actually wanted to be involved in, and they weren't just buying a ticket out of sufferance, uh, then you know that could be a good thing. Any ideas? Yeah. Now, one thing I would say, and I am saying this with slight not direct knowledge of things, but it, it does feel to me, because I know, in, like especially in the late 90s around Dundalk, there was a big thing that uh, there was golf classics, there was race days. Um, there was a lot of events of that kind of thing. When my dad was involved in the club, there was a lot of those types of traditional fundraising events, nights on and you go there. I wonder if, though, League of Ireland budgets have expanded to such a point that those kind of a race day event, a one-off, you would burn through that cash, I think, pretty fast. One thing I understand about Sligo's model is that it's based on a kind of a subscription basis. I mean, they have this 500 club thing where people are committed to a subscription of money. So it's less fun. And it's just my own reaction is that it seems that fundraisers in the modern era, if you do a quiz, that money would be burned through pretty fast. Whereas a subscription model might be the way, but you know, I. The, th- the impression I've had in the past is because I know in previous years an attempt was made at a 500 club type scenario. I think Cork have also something done similar through the years, which is a subscription model, which is uh, you get enough fans to regularly, literally you know, donate money and that keeps the coffers thing. Um, and for a town that loves the club and really sincerely loves the club, I always, the impression I'd gotten in the past when this was attempted, there wasn't, um, they didn't really just take off, so maybe it was pitched wrong. I know another thing that maybe the Sligo and Cork have done, which is to approach businesses, so it's not just your civilian punter is asked to um, to contribute, but I believe in, in other clubs, it's not so much that it's, it's an advertising model, but it's just local businesses are targeted to contribute to a community resource in that community spirit in a rolling manner. And I think that potentially is something, you know, to look into, but it's no easier said than done. Now, I know sometimes events have been tried in the past and there has been limited public interest in them. And maybe Dundalk fans, they kind of want to go, they want to pay their ticket for their ticket at the game or they have their season ticket. They want a couple of pints in the bar and then they kind of just want to, go back to their normal weekly routine. They don't necessarily um, want to get involved in selling tickets door to door for the Champions League draw, which we used to do when we, we had the connections to get us tickets to the Champions League, which was sometimes, you know, there was public interest in that, sometimes not. 
the difference between, I suppose, the fundraisers, the race days, the golf classics that we had in the late 90s is we didn't have podcasts in them days. So there was you were really guessing what people were interested in. And we didn't have means for really surveying the fans or anything like that. So we can throw it out there just as a general question. People can get back to us on Twitter or they can get back to us on the Spotify survey or whatever and tell us what would interest you as a fundraiser? Would it be like, um, you know, Legends Nights where we're bringing back, you know, league winning players to kind of tell us anecdotes about the 88 double winning side or the 95 team or stuff like that? Is that something if done twice a year or once a year? people would sign up for and make a night out of and maybe pay, you know, whatever, 20 euro for a ticket to hear Dermot Keeley and the, and the 95 team come back and reminisce about that campaign or anything else. Like, basically, we can ask our own fan base, what would interest you? What would you be willing to buy into? And maybe see what we get back. It need not necessarily be race days and golf classics, which, as you say, I don't know how much return you get on the investment you've got. The thing is that the club itself behind the scenes is maintained by a very small group of employees who I imagine are totally occupied in the firefighting that goes on in just running a match every fortnight and the other administrative um, work that they have to do and the physical maintenance of the ground and all of that, the UEFA licensing. I think I think the club is probably fully consumed with that. And that's why fundraising hasn't been, you know, very manifest or evident from the club itself. The supporters club seems to be still finding its feet and working out exactly what it what its role is and where it can function best. And, you know, that's probably something that will evolve. But maybe if the fan base could get back to us and tell us what they're interested in, that would give us some direction as a kind of community of fans as to what we can do. Because at the end of the day, like Sligo's fundraising efforts, it does top six figures and that does make a significant impact. Now, you might be right. I mean, maybe it's not world changing but that could certainly be the wages for a pretty good player or two that we could add to the squad and those little differences could make the difference between finishing sixth and finishing fourth and that could find you a route back into europe but i think as fans you know as well as we've done plenty of complaining about the squad and its application and you know fitness levels and everything we probably also have to look in the mirror and ask what more can we do next season now that additional support is needed um, to really try and move the club forward and address some of the issues it's having on the field of play. And on that rallying cry, we play Sligo Rovers prior to our final home game of the season against Bohemians. So onto the showgrounds and perhaps we'll see some new faces and an indication of what Dundalk uh, fans can expect from maybe the younger members of the squad who have had limited uh, minutes so far this season. Uh, maybe they'll get a run out in Sligo and maybe we'll see some of the some of the issues that we had last week. Who knows? We might see them addressed. We won on an earlier trip to the showgrounds. You know, Sligo are in, in different form. So who knows? We could get a victory there, which would set us up for a, a decent night against now Aviva Stadium-bound Bohemians who will hopefully have their minds on the FAI Cup when they come to Oriel Park the week after. I'd like to thank, as ever, our contributors, Martin Mullen and Rory Murphy. Thanks to everybody who contributed on Twitter. And thanks for listening to us on Spotify. And we will be back after the Sligo game. Let's hear for the man. This ain't the face of football. The face of football. The face of football.